today on Inspired Money. And I was like, ugh, only 10 million. What? Oh, God, what a... I hope I never say that phrase, it was only 10 million. I think if you catch yourself saying, it was only 10 million, then you've forgotten what $1,000 is, right? Like, oh God, that's terrible, only 10 million. So I decided I never wanted to be someone who would ever say it was only 10 million. This is episode 142 with author, entrepreneur, and thinker, Derek Sivers. Welcome to Inspired Money. My name is Andy Wong, a managing partner at Runnymede Capital Management. Each week, we bring you an interesting person to help you get inspired, shift your perspectives on money, and achieve incredible things. From making it to giving it away, inspired money means making a difference, creating something bigger than oneself, and maybe, just maybe, making the world a better place. Thank you for joining me. Inspired Moneymaker, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. I'm so excited that you're here for this episode with Derek Sivers. His friend Tim Ferriss says, Derek is one of my favorite humans, and I often call him for advice. One reason for this is that Derek really is a unique thinker and writer who challenges even his own thoughts. This is going to be so much fun because Derek hasn't been doing podcast interviews for a couple of years. He also hasn't often sat down to talk about money. If you don't know Derek, this is from his website. He's been a musician, producer, circus performer, entrepreneur, TED speaker, and book publisher. He's a monomaniac, introvert, slow thinker, and he loves finding a different point of view. If you're like me and need to look up monomaniac, the definition is a person exhibiting an exaggerated or obsessive enthusiasm for or preoccupation with one thing. And let me add to his intro, Derek's a minimalist and very well known for founding CD Baby in 1998. He grew that company to become the largest seller of independent music online with $100 million in sales for over 150,000 musicians. He went on to sell it in 2008 for $22 million. And as you're going to hear, he did not keep that money. In this episode, you'll learn the difference between living a highly focused life versus making time to ponder and think. Interesting thoughts on money, wealth, and defining what's enough. And then Derek's going to share some great book recommendations on the topic of money. Now let's get inspired with Derek Sivers. Derek, welcome to Inspired Money. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Andy. I love what you're doing. I'm happy to be here. Let's jump right in. What's your earliest childhood memory of money? My grandparents were kind of nouveau riche. Um, My grandfather moved to Oregon with $25 to his name after World War II and got a job at a construction company rose the ranks, became partner, bought out his partner, named it the Sivers Company. And I grew up thinking that we were rich. And what's interesting is how that shaped a lot of my life decisions, like deciding to be a musician, was with this feeling that there's a nice safety net here. 
in case this all goes to hell, I can, uh, I've got a safety net to fall back on. Hopefully I never have to, I want to be totally self-sufficient, but I felt like, you know, the family's rich. So if I ever have to fall back on that, I can. What's funny is that like 40 years later, my sister is now running the family business. And just a year or two ago, she called me up and said, Hey, when we were growing up, did you think that we were rich? And I said, yeah, I guess so. She said, so did I. She said, you know, what's weird now that I'm like running the family business. Like we're not rich. <laughs> like She said, I think I just, because we were kids, we thought that if you own property, you must be rich. But she said, no, like the mortgages just barely cover the property. Like if we sold all the properties, we would just kind of barely break even. So yeah, we're not rich. I went, oh, and I thought about this metaphorically that it's like you're walking a tightrope and somebody says, no, nah, don't worry, there's a net. There's a safety net down there. And so you go, da, 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 da. you're you know, playing on the tightrope. And only later you find out there was no net. What gave you the sense that you were rich? You know, there was a business called the Sivers Company that owned real estate. And so, you know, it had its had a name on the sign that said Sivers Company. So I guess we just assumed like, yeah. I still look forward into getting into the values and kind of the that risk-free or maybe that bravery that you had because you thought that you were rich. But before we get into that, you are a very thoughtful guy. I kind of view you as this like somewhat countercultural modern day philosopher. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, Tim Ferriss calls you the philosopher king programmer. It's a really big title. Were you always this way? Highly self-aware and thoughtful? Well, I spent age 14 to 29 being laser focused on one thing, which was just being a great musician. I mean, I didn't party. I didn't date. I didn't expand my horizons. I just focused. I was a workaholic musician. But then I spent age 29 to 38 completely focused on building CD Baby. So again, it was like no hanging out no going to restaurants, almost no love life, just focused work, like 7am to midnight, seven days a week for 10 years. That's all I did. So at 39, when I sold the company, it was kind of like I retired, which is you know, kind of like a professor getting tenure or something, right? It meant that for the first time in my life, I stopped focusing and I started exploring so since I wasn't head down in my work for the first time, I really wanted to lift my head up and look around for alternate ways of looking at the world, you know? I think that most people, including my past self, don't have time to ponder alternate perspectives on life or reflect on random ideas for hours a day. But now I do. And it's my favorite thing. Which is funny because I forget that I wasn't always like this. Like a, a girlfriend asked me, couple years ago, like, have you always been like this? And I said, yeah, of course, I've always, oh, hmm. And I had to stop myself mid-sentence. Like, no, I guess I haven't. I think it really started when I sold CD Baby and I was, you know, lifting my head up to explore the world more. So many people, their self-identity is so closely intertwined with their business and their profession. After those two different periods of hyper-focus, 
What did that feel like? Did you feel lost or did you feel liberated? <laughs> lost. I was lost for the first year or two uh, after selling CD Baby. But then really in a sudden flash one day, I was really into TED Talks at the time. And so in a sudden flash one day, I kind of went, oh, I know what I want to do next. <laughs> I want to be a writer, speaker, thinker kind of guy. I want the TED conference to invite me to come speak. I want to be like Seth Godin or Malcolm Gladwell. I want people to read my stuff and want to hear my thoughts. And this was all a very new idea to me. You know, until then, I had just been the guy that built the system that musicians used to sell their music. That's all I was. And this was my first time deciding to take a new course. So, yeah, but I felt pretty lost in between. And what did that process look like? Because from the outside, looking back, you still had this hyper-focused approach because you did not just one TED Talk, you did many. Yeah, but focus... Is, okay, when I think of focus, I think of being very head down, shutting out all distractions. Like, no, don't tell me anything about the Swahili language. I don't care. I'm trying to finish this. <laughs> I don't want to know how many children Charlie Chaplin had. I don't care. I'm trying to do my work. It's very, very laser focused where you've just got the blinders on intentionally and you're shutting out everything. But deciding that you want to be a great writer uh, of this kind of thing that I do, this kind of pop philosophy, nonfiction writing, means I am focused on being great at that. But in order to be good at that, I have to keep my head somewhat lifted up and looking for the metaphorical lessons of the world. Especially once I realized that my most successful TED Talks and articles have been the ones where I made some metaphorical connection, right? Like I just noticed that this video of a guy dancing on the hill reminded me of what I had learned about leadership and how movements are started through reading um, Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point and Seth Godin's book, Tribes. So it was like a metaphorical connection that seemed obvious to me, but I just shared it in three minutes and people thought that was uh, really cool. So I thought, okay, I guess maybe metaphors are my thing. Maybe 15 years of songwriting <laughs> and all those metaphors I made in writing lyrics uh, made me think a certain way. Uh, so I'm not as focused as I used to be in that head down blinder kind of way. Is that where you are today? Just trying to have this open mind to put those connections together? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that that's got to be related to the music and songwriting. Yeah, so is my writing style. You read my average article is only 22 sentences long, I counted recently. And I think that's from years of songwriting, where you have to make what you want to say match the number of syllables in your melody. So some, quite often you only have six syllables available to say what you want to say. So I think I'm used to squishing as much meaning into the minimum number of syllables I can. Do you like having that framework? Oh, yeah. In the same way I like having a clean house. <laughs> it's, it's the, it pleases my minimalist side to know that I'm doing the most with the least. I'm thinking... <laughs> I love it. It was nice silence. We, don't, we so rarely get silence in podcasts, do we? I don't know where I want to go. 
I don't know if I want to just talk about your writing or if I want to talk about money. <laughs> I'm happy to talk about, but let's talk about money. This is, I don't usually talk about money. I don't usually think about money. And part of the reason I said yes to coming on your show is this is a nice change for me to talk about something I don't usually think about much. Well, I don't think that we have philosophers on that often either. So welcome to the show. I wish there were more. I've actually constantly, you know what? I would love it if anybody listening to this show, including you, <laughs> um, if you have a recommendation for a philosophical book about money, I would love to read that because I feel like, except for maybe um, it was the book Enough by the guy who started Vanguard, I think, did Bogle? Um, yeah, John Bogle. Did he write a book called Enough? I don't, I'm trying to think. It's in my book list. I think I just, I can't remember if he was the author or if he's just kind of trying to do it. Anyway, there are very few books that get into the philosophy of money. Felix Dennis wrote How to Get Rich. That was fascinating. I highly recommend that book. Imagine this. He died just a year or two ago, but he wrote this book maybe 14 years ago. He was a British magazine publisher that uh, started out doing like, I think he started out with like a, a Bruce Lee magazine, but quickly started doing computer magazines like PC World or Mac World magazine. And then he started doing those kind of like softcore porn men's magazines like Stuff and Maxim and H -A -H HM something magazine. He ended up making like 700 million in publishing sale, or he was worth 700 million. He mentions this in his book. What's fascinating though is I think he knew he was near the end of his life. He'd been there, he'd done that, he'd seen it all. And he got the impression he was maybe even a little drunk when he decided to just write this tell-all book, uh, sharing his unfiltered, I don't care if you hate me for saying this kind of thoughts about money. And yes, he's doing it in a slightly instructional, here's how to get rich kid kind of way, but in between the lines, you, there are just a lot of his thoughts about money. So fascinating book. I highly recommend it. What is uh, the title of that book? How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis. Hmm. By the title, you wouldn't think that it's philosophical. You would think that it's more tactical. You can see my notes on it. If you go to sivers.org slash book and just search the page for Felix, F-E-L-I-X, you'll find um, the book How to Get Rich there and, and my excerpts from it, the ideas in it that I found the most interesting. Well, thank you for that book tip and the Derek Sivers notes that all the listeners can go get a pricey overview before diving in. Every book I've read since 2007 is there. That's when I started taking notes. I realized that I was forgetting what I had read in the past. So in 2007, I started taking notes with every book I read and uh, put them all online just to share. That's incredible. Well, you you brought up your minimalism and liking to have things orderly. You have a very simple definition of wealth. Let's let's start there. Sure. To me, wealth is just having more than you need. So the easiest way to become wealthy, and by far the best way to stay wealthy, is to not need much. Is that something that you developed over time? Was there a day that you came to a realization or has this always been the case even as a young kid? <clears throat> I think it was just partially through experience. So imagine this, when I was 22 years old, 
I was living in New York City and totally focused on being a successful musician. And I had a day job that I did from nine to five. And then I would work on my music all night and every weekend. And by the time I was 22, I had saved up $12,000 because I had my day job, which was like minimum wage, basically. I think that I think I was making only like $23,000 a year uh, working in the, the bottom of the ranks job inside Warner Brothers. But then I was gigging every weekend, making like uh, 300 bucks per gig as a musician. So I was living in a cheap apartment in an unfashionable part of Queens with three roommates. So my rent was only 333 bucks a month. I just had one little room in an apartment and I never ate out. I never took a taxi. I would wait an hour for the subway to come. So I didn't have to spend the you know $9 on a taxi. So my total cost of living was about 500 bucks a month. And since I was making about $300 per show, that meant since I had this $12,000 saved up, I realized, you know, I can quit my day job now since I really only have to work two days a week doing gigs to pay my cost of living. So I did it. I, I quit my last day job in uh, 1992. Uh, and that was one version of realizing I had enough. You know, I knew that I could live on 500 bucks a month because I had done it for years in New York City and I was quite happy. So everything after that just felt like excess, you know, like when I was 32, 10 years later, CD Baby was earning like $30,000 a month net profit to me. I had no investors. It was just I was the sole owner and I was living at my grandma's house for free then. And once I had like $300,000 in the bank, I realized that even if I never earned money again, like if it all shut down the next day and I got to keep that $300,000, well, that's enough that I could just invest it in some safe, boring mutual funds that might get me like 5 to 8% return per year. And I could live off that interest indefinitely. So that was like my final version of enough. So everything since then has felt like more than enough. And whenever I think of how to make it last longer, how to be wealthier, I think of it as like a, a ratio, a multiplier, you know, you're what you have uh, over divided by or over the uh, your cost of living, I think, well, cut your cost of living in half, you've just doubled your wealth. And I know that I can, at least I could live on 500 bucks a month. Uh, I haven't checked my monthly earnings lately. But you know, it's nice to know that I can. Derek, most people who are caught up in the rat race, I think that they don't even have a definition of what is enough. They don't really think about that. Since you've had this awareness for a long time now, is that definition of enough, is that a moving target? Does it change much over time? Well, no, I mean, the definition of enough to me just, hmm. Okay, it can depend on where you live. You know, so the what it costs to feel okay in Singapore versus New Zealand versus England versus uh, Wyoming is going to be different. But I think you have to know yourself well enough to know your real needs, right? Like I've experimented in the past with buying things I thought I needed, owning them for a year and realizing like, mm, no, I don't really need that thing. And so then I'll sell it on eBay and it's nice to know, okay, there, there's another thing I've now proven I don't need. So, yeah, I think it would be rough if you developed an aficionado taste for fine 
cars or something like that, then, oh, poor you, you know, your, your enough number has just risen dramatically since now that you've become a car aficionado, you're going to have to satisfy that need, I guess. I feel bad for people that get really, really into audiophile equipment or cars or the best wines or the finest taste in food and all of that, you know, uh, it's, it's a blessing and a curse, right? You could say, oh, but now I experience the joys of cuisine that I didn't before. But yeah, now you've got to work a lot harder to continue to afford it. I'm glad that a uh, $4 turkey sandwich is still one of my favorite foods. <laughs> Back when you were making $300 a gig, were those the circus gigs that you played? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And would you have like the same thing for lunch every day or did you change it up and just you knew to spend very little? <laughs> How did you know? I, I asked because I at one time worked with a guy in my first job out of college. He had it was ham and cheese on a bagel every day with a Coke. He never <laughs> changed. That was his meal every day at lunch. I'm a little bit like that. Yeah. Every single morning for like seven years now. I have a can of black beans with a little shredded cheddar cheese. And uh, just a year ago, I started adding some onions and bell peppers to it to think that I should probably introduce some more veggies. And no, I, I think that's the only every single day thing. Yeah, that's just like I don't eat without even thinking about it. Every single morning, a can of black beans. Uh, I, in New Zealand, I used to put it over a bed of uh, baby spinach. But yeah, I'm kind of like that. I eat almost nothing. My cost of eating is probably... Like under $5 a day. <laughs> Getting back to my original question, is it like a moving target? I guess what I'm trying to get at is as you made more money over time, do your values change? Because as you make more, you can spend more and still be wealthy as long as you're not overspending. But how consistent are the values? Well... I think your values change when your situation changes. And sorry, I'm going to zoom out and talk more generally now for a second. So we all have a need for certainty and a need for uncertainty. Like these are just two core human needs. Um, so for example, when your life is boring or too stable or too predictable, well, then you crave more uncertainty. You crave more adventure. But when something happens that shakes your whole foundation of security, well, then suddenly you crave more certainty. So in that situation, like your values have now changed. It, last year, you could have described yourself as somebody very adventurous. And right now you might describe yourself as just like, I'm just trying to hold it together. <laughs> you know, values change depending on situations. A few months ago, I was planning on moving to a tiny studio apartment in the heart of the city and making a point of never being home. I thought it would be a nice change of pace for me since I tend to just work at home all the time. But, you know, I really should get out into the world more often. So I'm going to get a little apartment in the heart of the city and I'm going to make myself leave home every morning at 8 a.m. and not return home until 8 p.m. I'm just going to go do my writing and reading out in public places. Right. Like that was my plan. And I was really getting ready to execute this big change of lifestyle. But now in Corona times, I'm really glad to be in my little house in the Oxford countryside, because it's a great place to be during this lockdown. You know, it's like giant wide open fields and farms with no people. So you can go on a two hour walk and not see another person. So 
Okay, so now we'll zoom back into the money thing. Like in my 20s, I was very driven by money. I wanted to make money making music. I thought it would be a great barometer or compass that I was on the right path. If people are paying me to make music, that means I'm doing something right. So I would get so excited if I negotiated an extra $100 from a booking agent. You know, they offer me a gig for 250 bucks and I say some things to get it up to 350 bucks by the time we're off the phone, I'd hang up the phone and go, yes, oh, that felt good. I just made a hundred bucks by saying a few sentences. Wow. But now I'm just completely ambivalent about money. Like you could put a million dollars in my bank account and I wouldn't even notice. And if you gave me a billion dollars, I would just give it straight to charity because I just don't want it. I mean, I just, I literally just don't want any more money. So my values have changed. Coming up, we talk about selling CD Baby, why Derek didn't keep the proceeds of $22 million, comparing a profitable business to writing a hit song, all that and so much more right after this short break. The show notes for this episode can be found at inspiredmoney.fm slash 142. If you're listening in your car or wherever you are, Check the show notes if you want to learn more about Derek, links to recommended books, and other things mentioned in this episode. It's time for the Runnymede Money Tip of the Week. Derek gave a talk to incoming first-year students at the Berklee College of Music in 2008, entitled, Six Things I Wish I Knew the Day I Started Berklee. I really like this talk. I like it so much that I recently shared it with friends whose daughter is going to attend Berklee next year. I'll leave a link where you can read it or watch a video of the full speech. I'm going to read an excerpt for you because it seems to carry a lot of weight even at this moment. While you're here, stay locked in the shed. Enjoy this wonderful isolation with no responsibility but to improve yourself. But when you leave here, head to the business aisle of the bookstore and start reading a book a week about entrepreneurial things like marketing. Never underestimate the importance of making money making music. Let go of any weird taboos you have about it. Money is nothing more than neutral proof that you're adding value to people's lives. Making sure you're making money is just a way of making sure you're doing something of value to others. Remember, this usually comes in the form of doing things that most people don't do. For example... How much does the world pay for people to play video games? Nothing, because everyone does it. How much does the world pay for people to make video games? A ton, because very few can do it, and lots of people want it. Be one of the few that is clever enough to make money making music instead of pretending it doesn't matter. Be one of the few that has the guts to do something shocking. Be one of the few that takes your lessons here as a starting point and pushes yourself to do more with what you learn. Be one of the few that knows how to help yourself instead of expecting for others to do it for you. Be one of the few that does much more than is required. And most importantly, be one of the few that stays in the shed to practice while everyone else is surfing the net, flirting on Facebook, and watching TV. That's the Runnymede Money Tip of the Week.
Inspired Money is brought to you by Runnymede Capital Management. We help you to plan, invest, and worry less. What are some of the things that you're working on right now? Or if you have a question or something that you like or don't like about this podcast, I'd really love to hear from you. You're listening to Inspired Money. I'm Andy Wong. When you sold CD Baby, you did something unique, not just at the sale, but preparing up to the point of that sale. Can you talk about that? The deal is, I should step back a couple years. I only had one rich friend before I sold CD Baby. There was only one person I knew that was rich. And he had sold his company about a, a couple of years before for like $35 million. And he and his wife decided to buy a huge house in central London. And when he was telling me about it, he said, yeah, you know, we just, we really liked the neighborhood and we found this house and, and it was only 10 million. So we thought, yeah, let's buy it. And I was like, ugh, only 10 million. What? Oh God, what a, I hope I never say that phrase. It was only 10 million. I think if you catch yourself saying it was only 10 million, then you've forgotten what, a thousand dollars is right. like, oh, God, that's terrible. Only 10 million. So I decided I never wanted to be someone who would ever say it was only 10 million. At the time, I never thought I would sell my company. Like when when he said that, I thought I was just going to keep running CD Baby for the rest of my life. But then, you know, some stuff happened that was more of like a personal failure. Like I was a bad manager and the things inside CD Baby were just turning really sour. And I just felt like I'm done I've done this for 10 years. I'm personally feeling done. And I had been saying no to everybody that had asked for years if I would sell the company, or even I'd been saying no to all investors, all offers to buy the company. I just told customer service, just don't even send those calls to me. Just tell them, no, I'm not interested. But now it was like a week or two after Christmas. It was January, 2008. And I just personally felt done. Like we had a great Christmas season and I just had no more vision for what I wanted CD Baby to do in the future. So I was feeling done. And as usual, I got three different offers to buy the company that week. I was always getting offers to buy the company. I always just told them all no. But that week, I thought, well, maybe. Like I never thought I would sell, but maybe. So yeah, I, I emailed the three of them back. I said, actually, yeah, I'm, give me your best offer. So I had them bid against each other. And I contacted Amazon too. And I kind of like got them into the the bidding. So now I had four companies bidding against each other to buy. And in the end, I actually chose not the highest bidder, but I chose the company that I thought would be the best steward into the future for my musician clients that I cared so much about. So their offer was 22 million. And um, then we had a handshake deal. And it was, you know, another eight months of paperwork before it's done. But I had eight months to think about this, right? So there was eight months in between this handshake of 22 million and when the deal was done. So I had plenty of time to go read all of these books about investing. And that's actually when I read like How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis. And I read Enough by John Bogle. And I was reading some of these books that just kind of helped me think about this, think this through. But I think even if I hadn't have read those books, I knew that I never wanted to be like my friend that would say only 10 million. So what I kept coming back to is this idea of like, I'm just going to give it all away anyway. 
So, yeah, I asked my lawyer. No, I didn't ask him. My lawyer said something about the money. Like, what are you going to do with the money? I said, I'm just going to give it all to charity. And he said, are you serious? I said, yeah. And he said, all of it? I said, yeah. Come on. CD Baby had already been earning a net profit of about $4 million a year at that point. I had plenty of money. Like, I didn't need or want this $22 million. And in fact, I just, I didn't want to be one of those icky guys that says only 10 million for this house or does something really stupid, like buying a Lamborghini. I just never wanted to be that guy. So I thought, I don't even want the money to come to my hands. I don't want it to ever be mine. And so, yeah, my lawyer asked me about that. And he said, are you sure? Like, you really don't ever want the money, like ever, ever for the rest of your life. I said, no, never, ever for the rest of my life. It would have to be some kind of personal failure for me to ever need or even want that money. So that's when he said, well, if you're serious about this, we could structure this whole deal in a much better way so that the money really never does touch your hands. I said, okay, I'm interested. And he said, if you sell the company personally and this $22 million comes to you, then the IRS will take about $7 million and you'll have $15 million left to give to charity. I said, okay. And he said, if you were to give away the company to charity in advance, then the entire $22 million goes to charity. And I said, ooh, I like that. <laughs> this is nice. <laughs> like, I, this just fits with what I want. Yes, I don't want the money. I don't want it to ever touch my hands. So he said, okay, it's something called a charitable remainder unit trust. We transfer the ownership of CD Baby into the charitable remainder unit trust to now when the deal is not a sure thing. It might fall through. And he said, I need you to make, I need you to understand that, that this is how it might go. You might transfer your company into charity and then there might be no sale. Are you still okay with that? I said, yeah, I wish I would have transferred the company into charity years ago. I didn't know that this was an option. He said, yeah, okay. So that's what we did. And then it also addressed my one lingering concern or fear, which is like, what if like 50 years from now, I'm like an old guy that has to get a job at Burger King because I've got no money left. And so that the, the deal with a charitable remainder unit trust is that it pays out the settlor like a, a little minimum percentage per year. So I, I said what I really wanted was just like 1% of that per year to live on. So yeah, so that's how we structure the whole thing. And that's why I did it that way. It sounds like a minimalist's dream. Yeah. It's like to... That money's not mine, but I get my little, you know, annual payout, which is more than enough, as you know. Um, and that's what I wanted. And then the rest is just, yeah, it's already, it's already not mine. It's already gone. I was surprised to read on your blog. You said it's not that I'm altruistic. I think you are altruistic. Nah, not really. I mean, I, I know it's in my heart. I'm not one of those. I don't get moved to tears when I see people suffering. I mean, I, I'm rationally concerned, but I'm not like a, um, I'm also not a psychopath, but I'm just like, I'm not a deeply empathetic person. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sacrificing myself. You know what I mean? That's why I had to back up and give you the full context. It's not like, Oh, I'll just sleep on my little pile of dirt here so I can, give everything I ever made to everybody. I'm not suffering. I'm, I'm still living what to me is a luxurious life by my own definition. Yeah. Does saving $5 million in taxes 
excite you more than making the 22 million for selling your company? I liked that idea that it would just, that the entire 22 million would go to charity instead of only 15 million. That to me was just like a, a no brainer. So it wasn't, I'm not like looking for ways to, to cheat the IRS out of money. I'm not one of those guys. I mean, I, I appreciate what our taxes do for us. I mean, it's, it's one thing that I love about living in New Zealand, for example, is man, I, I feel like living in New Zealand, I was using the advantages of tax money more than I did in America because I spent so much time in New Zealand in things like the national parks, which have these department of conservation signs around and, and things like that. Um, I'm happy to pay my taxes to, to where I live. Um, so I don't use that as some kind of metric, like, haha, look how much I didn't pay them. No, it was more just in this case, it was just pure to the intention of what I wanted. I wanted the entire 22 million to go to charity. Right. It was the maximum benefit of what your intended goal was. Yeah. Derek, you were a musician. Is building a successful business like writing a hit song? <laughs> I admire the metaphor. You know, I love metaphors. Uh, but... I think a hit song is not anything like a successful business because in the music business, whether it's, whether a song is a hit or not is just completely out of your control. And it has almost nothing to do with whether it's a great song or not. There are tons and tons of great songs that nobody will ever hear. And there are many terrible songs that have become a big hit. So instead, I think what you're really asking or what your what your listeners really want to hear about is about making a profitable business because that that isn't so hard right like we have to be careful how you define a profitable business because i think if you bake cookies once a month and it costs you $5 and you sell them for 10 bucks to your neighbor well now you have a profitable business you're now making 5 bucks a month so like my my whole first year or two of cd baby was not so different from that example. It was something I was doing part-time and it was making between 100 200 at first, $300 a month. It took like a whole year or so before it was making like $2,000 a month of profit. But the point is that it was profitable from the second month. Like only my first month ever was not profitable. Ever since the second month, it was profitable. I had no investors. It was just something I was doing. And as long as it made a few hundred dollars, it was sustainable. It was only after four years of doing it that it was making like 30000 a month, right? So my advice to your listeners is to forget the unicorns. Like, don't look to Facebook or Tesla as role models. I think you'll actually do yourself more harm than good by looking at these billion-dollar companies and trying to learn lessons from them for yourself. So instead... I actually think it's more useful to aim low because it keeps you focused on serving individuals and keeping your focus on individual customers. Like if you have something that could do well by having 10 customers, that's amazing because now you can talk to those 10 customers and you can constantly think of them as individuals instead of thinking like, how can I get a million users? You know, that's just, that's a harmful way of thinking. Because it um, it makes you lose sight already of the fact that these are individuals and 
talking to them and having their needs. And it also makes you lose sight on the idea of staying profitable without investors, right? So some ways to get into the right mindset for this, I think, uh, some great teachers of this mindset are uh, Amy Hoy, uh, spelled H-O-Y. She has a site called Stacking the Bricks. So search the web for Amy Hoy, Stacking the Bricks. Uh, her website used to be called Unicorn Free, which is why I'm thinking of her, because she was always very like anti-Silicon uh, Valley unicorn businesses, reminding software. Uh, she speaks to, to software entrepreneurs, like how you can make a good living making software, making your own software or running your own software business. So yeah, read Amy Hoy at Stacking the Bricks. Um, read Seth Godin's thoughts on what he calls the minimum viable audience. And I love this profound idea, which is that when you're starting a new business, you should aim to make it as small as you possibly can, which is yeah. Let Seth Godin talk more about that. <laughs> Look at Seth Godin's ideas about that. He'll say it better than I could here. So go find Seth Godin speaking about the minimum viable audience and an author named Chris Gilbo, G-U-I-L-L-E-B-E-A-U, has a book called The $100 Startup. And I think he wrote a few other books after that that were all related, um, full of stories of people who have started their own profitable business on $100 or less. And just to me, that is so much more inspiring than hearing about how PayPal or Facebook or Tesla was started. Because it's just, these are things that you can do from Oklahoma or Moldova right now for $100. And it's under your control. You're not having to hope for the, like you said, the hit song metaphor or having a hit investor. <laughs> you don't need to get Andreessen Horowitz to invest in your thing in order for it to be big. It's like, here's something that you can do for a hundred bucks that it's completely under your control with no investors and remain profitable the whole time. To me, that is so much more inspiring and realistic because it keeps everything under your own control at all times. That's a better goal. That's great advice because I think it's so easy for people to be overwhelmed by the idea of scale, trying to reach a million people. So if you keep it small, keep your focus small and let it happen organically, just grow a little bit at a time. Yeah. And I think it's healthier too. I, you could probably make all kinds of nature comparisons, right? Like even baby elephants are born small, <laughs> um, right? And um, yeah, everything everything is born small, and that's nature's way. Or you could make the metaphor of a of a more solid foundation, right? That if you quickly slap up something, aiming for it to be huge, you're going to have a more shaky foundation than if you let things build gradually and slowly. So um, yeah, these are much better role models. This is a much better way of thinking about something you're starting. Going back to when you were running CD Baby, already it seemed like your goals and your corporate values were quite different from what we see in entrepreneurs today. Many of them are dreaming of VC funding and then selling the company for as much as they can. Right. When I look at your actions, you believe that 
a company actually represents something different than a get-rich-quick scheme? Well, I'm not going to tell others how they should run it. That's what it was for me. I think that we're all affected by our surrounding culture. So a big reason that Vienna of 1780 to 1820 spawned Mozart and Beethoven is because in Vienna at that time, there was this culture of music appreciation. Like the audience pushed Mozart and Beethoven to greatness because in that culture at that time, great compositions were celebrated. It was like those composers were famous in the streets of the time. And so Silicon Valley for the last 25 years or more has had this culture that celebrates the thing that you just described, like the VC funding and the big exit. Like that's what's glorified and applauded in those circles. So we're affected by our surrounding culture. I I think it's hard not to be affected by it if you live there, if you're in that culture or aspire to being in that culture. But I was a musician in hippie, artsy Woodstock, New York, when I started CD Baby. I had no desire to be an entrepreneur. I had no desire to run a business. Yuck, you know, (laughs) I was just trying to be a great musician. I didn't want some business distracting me from my goal of being a great musician. So because of that, the DNA was different from its birth, right? Like I didn't see CD Baby as a business. I saw it as a favor that I was doing for my fellow musicians. And I just charged money to keep it sustainable so I could keep doing that. But I'm not prescribing that for others. I think if my little book about business called Anything You Want, if it had a a subtle or unspoken message, it was just about asking other entrepreneurs to consider that there's a different way of looking at whatever you're doing. And it can be whatever you want it to be. That I see starting a business as just as creative as starting a band or painting a mural or whatever. It's just, this is something that you are creating in the image of whatever you want it to be. And so you just have to ask yourself what you really want it to be. And if somebody's doing something purely for the money, great. You know, as long as you know that that's why you're doing it. Getting back to what you mentioned at the start of our conversation, that you grew up believing that you were rich and that kind of afforded you the opportunities to, I don't know, maybe take more risk or do things um, that you wanted to pursue. You know, you, you didn't feel that you had to go work at the canning plant or something because you had to pay the bills. You had some flexibility. Um, So let me interrupt here. Sorry. Uh, But that exact point that you mentioned, besides the other things I've said already, my girlfriend's parents were a huge influence on me because I had, uh, I had this great girlfriend for six years from the age of 20 to 26. And her parents lived in a little cabin in the woods of Brimfield, Massachusetts. And I'll bet that that cabin probably cost them 20,000 bucks. And her parents never did have jobs. They just did random jobs for money. Her dad was a photographer that would get some freelance gigs uh, taking photos. And her mom would do like random odd jobs for neighbors. And that was it. 
And with that money, they raised a daughter and put her through college and had their own house in the woods with a horse that somebody gave them for free, I think. And uh, this was a huge inspiration for me because I was living in New York City. And yes, my job paid minimum wage. But I think until then, I did think that that was something I had to do. I wasn't trying to make a ton of money, but I thought like I had to kind of do my own little version of the rat race, right? But then seeing her parents live on so little. And then I was also in the circus surrounded by jugglers and magicians and puppeteers, (laughs) which it might surprise you, none of them were rich. Um, (laughs) So these were my peers and my role models. And so I think in this environment, I just, yeah, I think I'm done with the whole day job thing. I'll just find a way to make a few hundred bucks to pay my cost of living and keep it low. I'm seeing how it is that you've been able to think differently (laughs) from the masses when your counterparts are jugglers and people in the circus. Yeah, I actually, I did it. I was in the circus for 10 years from the age of 18 to 28 because everybody around me was also in the circus. I kind of forgot that that was a weird thing. And, you know, later after starting CD Baby, I'd be like at some uh, gathering conference in San Francisco or something like that. And I'd say something like, well, you know, when I was in the circus, da, 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 and people would go, wait, what? Are you serious? Wait, that's not a metaphor? You were in the circus? I went, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. I forget. That's, that's weird for you. <laughs> it is pretty unique when you can tell people, literally, I was in the circus. Yeah. Well, I mean, sorry, but I feel a little bad for people who think that's weird. Like, it's a big world out there. You can do anything. Like this, this sad thing of just like, you, know, you go to high school and you major in, you go straight to college and you just kind of have some major and you get straight out of college. You just get some job where you're just pushing papers from left to right across a desk. It's just, there's more to life. You know, you can get a job on a fishing boat. You can go start an ostrich farm. You can, you know, there's lots of things you can do in the world. And in fact, you should, because then it just gives you different perspectives on what's out there. You don't have to, you kind of shouldn't go straight through some weirdly optimized corporate path, the well-paved path. They're just, there's so many other approaches to life out there. There's much more than sitting behind a desk every day. Yeah. Surprising, huh? (laughs) Derek, as a parent, when it comes to money or otherwise, what lessons are you trying to impress upon your child? Um, (laughs) uh, hmm. We don't really talk about money. And, you know, as you can tell, I live a pretty frugal life. So he doesn't know that I have any money. (laughs) He's only eight. Sorry, to be clear, my kid just turned eight. So, um, yeah. And very often when we're out, I'll bring a credit card with me, but like no cash. And sometimes he'll say like, oh, hey, can I have this Batman toy? And I say, no, sorry, I don't have any money. He'll go, oh. (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, if he sees, no, sorry, more like a, a, a vending machine or those little thing, things where you could put a dollar coin in or a 25 cent coin to twist it and get a gumball or something. Those are the things where I, I say, honestly, like, sorry, I don't have any money. I don't have any coins. I'll go, so I think he just thinks that we have no money. And that's great. But, but, but I'm laughing, though, because there was this great moment when he was like six years old that he was drawing a bunch of drawings on just some little pad of paper that like, I think a realtor had given me just, you know, one of those little corporate branded stamped 
stationary little pads of paper, you know, six by four inches or whatever. So he started filling it with drawings. And then he said, let's go sell the drawings. I'm going to go sell my drawings and make a lot of money. <laughs> okay. So we were living in Wellington, New Zealand at the time. We went into downtown Wellington and I brought my camera. And this is one of my favorite home movies I've ever made. It's him going around to strangers trying to sell his drawings. And he would just boldly go up to adults, say, excuse me, do you want to buy my drawings? And the first two people said, uh, no. And I said, okay, hold on. Here's what you got to do. Go up to the grownups and say, do you want to see my drawings? I said, most of them will say yes, because that would be mean to tell a kid, no, I don't want to see your drawings. I said, so show them all of your drawings. And then when you're done, ask them if they like them. And they'll probably say yes. Nobody would say no to a kid. After they say they like them, then say, which one would you like to buy? <laughs> and he said, okay. And he started going around to all these people hanging out in the park in Wellington, New Zealand. And he did it like I suggested. And he made, I think, $17 selling his little pencil drawings on the back of corporate stationery to, to strangers. But I just think like felt bad for him. And it was so amazing. And he was so excited about making $17. And he's like talking into the camera saying, I'm going to be a famous artist someday. And he was like, I think he was like doing it YouTube style, like telling people like, here's how you can be a famous artist like me. I just made $17. And he's like, Dad, is that enough for a meal? I went, uh-huh. And so he tells the camera, that's enough to buy a meal. <laughs> I was just like so proud of him. So he still gets excited about like how to make money. He's often like looking at things in the house going, I think if I, if I wrap that in tape and color it, I'll be able to go sell that for money. I said, right on, go for it. Well, it makes sense. If he's looking at his dad, it's how do you use your intellect, your creativity to just create something and be compensated for it. And I love the, you gave him a crash course in Circus hustling, like the circus hustle. <laughs> this is right. how we're going to do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that is one of my favorite home movies. But um, but no, he doesn't see this side of me, though. So the way that he and I play, no, we, I'm just his little follower. He's He leads the way in his fantasy adventures, and I just follow along. He does. He's never seen me work. He doesn't know what I do. He doesn't see any of this. Um so no, this wasn't him imitating me in any way. This is just him getting excited about the idea of making money from selling his drawings. I'm guessing it might be more subtle. I mean, you might not be explicitly explaining to him, this is what I do. This is, this is what my life has been like. But just when he just sees you and interacts with you, some of that has to be <laughs> through I osmosis. I, I don't think so. I really think it's not... I, th I really think he's come upon this on his own. Um, but, but yeah, I'm glad that he... Yeah, he said some of the things like uh, at his school, he said something about like, oh, at my sc school, uh, all the rich kids are friends with each other. And um, I'll say, oh, really? How do, how do you know? And he said, well, I know that this kid is rich and I know that, that kid's rich and they're, they're friends. I said, are the rich kids different than you? He's like, mm, they have a bunch of stupid things. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, my one friend got, he got a pheasant for Christmas. He has a pheasant at home now. I said, oh yeah, that is weird. Yeah. And so every now and then I'll ask him, like, if you were rich, what would you do with the money? <laughs> and just this is actually just a few weeks ago. I asked him that as we were walking through a field somewhere. I said, if you were rich, what would you do with the money? He goes, oh, I know what I do. I would go skiing. 
I said, that's what you do if you're rich. He goes, yeah, that's what the rich kids do, right? They go skiing. So that must be really expensive. I was like, no, actually, it's not. I could take you skiing. Skiing's not expensive. He goes, really? <laughs> um, yeah, anyway. I love the insights of a child. Yeah. The view into their mind. Derek, I love to ask all the Inspired Money guests, how do you define success? To me, it is just doing what you set out to do. I think of everything I'm doing as quite project-based. If I set out to write a book on this subject, on a certain subject, and have some surprising insights on that subject, well, then it's a success if I do that. If I set out to build a website that shares a bunch of thoughts about making music in 10 languages, and if I'm able to do that, then that's a success. I don't think of some universal definition like I am a success. I just, I can't think of it that way. It's more per project for me. Well, thank you, Derek. Thank you for sharing your thinking with us today. Yeah, of course. And talking about money. (laughs) It's an interesting subject, isn't it? Um, So yes, again, if if anybody finds some uh, philosophical, I was going to say books, but even if it's just philosophical articles about money, please email me, go to sivers.org and my contact info is right there on the site. Please send me an email, introduce yourself, let me know if you've found any philosophies of money. I've, I was actually emailing with um, both Ramit Sethi and Tim Ferriss and some other people I know that are rich saying, like, have any of you found a book about what to do after you get rich? And uh, nobody has. There's a bunch of books on how to get rich, but nobody talks about what to do after you get rich. So um, I'm fascinated in the subject, if anybody's found anything on that subject. So you're planting a seed for the next project. <laughs> I don't know if that's, I don't know if I'm going to write about that. But if somebody else does, like, I, I just don't really think about money that much. But if anybody else writes about this, please let me know. Well, Derek does an extraordinary job of answering people's emails. Any place else you want to send people to follow you and learn more besides the website that you just gave? No, I am uh, I'm a firm believer in just keeping things on your own site. So I uh, I think of Sivers.org as like my my legacy. Like, I'm ready to die at any time. If I die tomorrow, I'm happy. If I die in 50 years, I'm happy. You know, like, my, I try to share everything I've learned and everything I got on Sivers.org so that when I'm dead, like, that will be my legacy. That's what I'm leaving. Beautiful. A true minimalist. Thank you, Derek. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. So, what was your favorite Inspired Money moment? How did you like the episode? I hope that you liked it as much as I did. I love Derek's definition of wealth. Having more than you need is the easiest way to become wealthy, and by far the best way to stay wealthy is not to need much. Beyond that, Derek's idea of knowing what's enough is so important. Because of the simple equation, what you have divided by your cost of living, if you cut your cost of living in half, essentially you're doubling your wealth. So I want to give you a little piece of homework this week. Take some time to think about what's enough for you. What is really enough to bring you happiness? And built into this is taking some time to slow down so that you have a moment where you have time to think. If you enjoyed listening to Derek today, I highly recommend going to Sivers.org. That's S-I-V-E-R-S.org 
to read his website and blog. There's so much great writing on a number of topics. And as Derek said, he's written book notes on every book that he's read since 2007. There's a treasure trove of great reading here. If you had a different favorite Inspired Money moment or thoughts on today's topic, please message me on Instagram at inspiredmoney.fm. That's instagram.com slash inspiredmoney.fm. I want to thank Eric Hunley of Unstructured Podcast for helping me to clean up Derek's track today so that it sounds great. And go to unstructuredpod.com to hear the cool things that Eric is doing. And here's a quick promo to his show. My name is Eric Hunley, and I host Unstructured. On Unstructured, I have intimate conversation with a diverse range of people. I've interviewed a presidential candidate and a felon, not the same person. I've even chatted with a musher. Yep, a sledder behind a pack of dogs. And in these conversations, we learn what drives these folks. Please, come check out Unstructured. You can find Unstructured wherever you listen to podcasts. Inspired Money is edited by Christopher Wright of Wright Media. If you like this episode, please do me a favor and share it with someone. Send them an email, tell them over the phone, maybe tell them in person, or post it to social media and tag them. I appreciate you for joining me today. If you haven't yet subscribed, please subscribe now so that you won't miss next week's show. I look forward to seeing you then. The music you're listening to right now and all other music on today's show is by the amazing Jim Kimo West. Have an inspired week and do something that scares you because that's where the magic happens.